This is our 22nd episode in the Immunology 101 series, a segment where we do our best to explain complicated immunology concepts. Joining me today are my wonderful co-hosts, Ash and Koshika. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing well. Doing very well. Thank you. You know, I'm very excited today about our tournament. We hosted a tournament to find out (laughs) What's the most hated immune cell? I'm La- so curious to hear the results. Yeah, so last time we had neutrophils who bagged all the hate for themselves. Um, they beat <sighs> out alpha, beta, T cells and B cells. Um, I think they also beat conventional dendritic cells. In the second round of this tournament, we ran a poll on our Twitter with four of these options. Eosinophils, natural killer cells, gamma delta cells, and innate lymphoid cells. Can you guys guess who was the most hated immune cell out of these? So I know I voted for eosinophils. Okay. <laughs> so that's my I guess. I would say I would say eosinophils or ILCs, but my vote would go to ILCs. <laughs> yeah, well, Kirshika, you'd be happy to know ILCs have secured most votes. Almost, oh! almost 50% of them. If this was an election, they could form a government by themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I guess guess congratulations to innate lymphoid cells. Yay! (laughs) What's the most interesting part about this poll is that nobody voted for natural killer cells. Really? That tells me there's a secret fan base of natural killer cells that just lurks in the dark and they're shaping public opinion without coming out or nobody cares about them people are indifferent they're like they exist we know or maybe that we, we, we'll so never know. Or love. we will never know that but yeah i guess we have two winners from two rounds neutrophils and ilcs so we will have our third round of the tournament out soon people who are listening to this make sure you vote and again make your voice count this is an important question <laughs> that will obviously help the human civilization. <laughs> now, okay, should we get into what we talked about in the last episode? Yes, let's do it. Okay, perfect. So I remember talking about uh, how B cells get to the lymph node and how they get activated. I think we also mentioned that there are a few different fates of B cells. Them, these fates are determined by transcription factors. Um, I remember plasma cells, germinal center B cells, and memory B cells. Uh, We also talked about plasma cells more specifically and how they produce the low affinity antibodies in large amounts at the beginning of an infection. And I remember how these antibodies are important for a rapid response um, and and that the more optimized antibody response comes, comes later and comes after that. Thanks a lot, Ash, for reviewing the previous episode. And I think... We have been delaying this whole part about the more optimized antibody response all this time. So maybe we're emotionally ready for this now to finally finally look at some advanced stuff. Can we talk about can we talk about the optimization of an antibody response? Yeah, I think we are as well. Um, And so I will uh, introduce four different terms. 
somatic hypermutation, affinity maturation, clonal selection, and class switching. That's a lot of terms. That's four too many terms than I was ready to talk about today. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Koshika, do you want to start talking about where all of this magic happens? And maybe at some point, we'll also be learning about these four terms. Sure. If you're talking about the magic, the magic happens in the germinal centers. Is that what you mean? Yes, precisely. Yeah, so let's talk about the germinal centers. So germinal centers were discovered a long time ago in 1884 by this guy called Walter Fleming in secondary lymphoid organs. He noticed that there were these clusters of dividing cells, and they th then he thought that these clusters is where lymphocytes are produced. And that's the reason why they're called germinal centers, you know, because they generate these lymphocytes. That's what he thought. But he was so wrong. They're not the lymphocyte production sites, as we know, but rather the place where B cells undergo all the wonderful terms that Ash just introduced, somatic hypermutation, antibody affinity maturation. And really these processes, so somatic hypermutation and affinity maturations, is what makes us makes it possible for us to generate the best and the most optimal antibody-producing plasma cells and memory B cells to fight infections. So other than the B cells, are there other cells in the germinal centers that help uh, this to make this optimized response? Yeah, I mean, we will talk more in details about germinal centers today and in our next episode. Uh, but to please the T-cell chauvinist in you, Ash, uh, let me just say that germinal B centers wouldn't get far without the help of germinal center T-cells. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> Obviously, that's the case. But uh, what actually turns the B-cell into a germinal center B-cell? Is it the T-cells or is it a tra transcription factor? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, from all that we've learned about T-cells and B-cells and their fates, transcription factors are obviously the right answer. It's a transcription yeah. factor. <laughs> and specifically, it's a transcription factor B-cell lymphoma 6 or BCL6. We mentioned it previously in our last episode. So BCL6 is so important for germinal centers that if you get rid of it in mice, they don't make any germinal centers. And BCL6 is important because it lowers the level of the chemokine receptor EBI2 that we also mentioned in our previous episode. And when it downregulates EBI2, BCL6 helps B cells um, that are be less attracted to the edges of the follicles and they start moving away from the edges to the follicle center. Okay, so the B cells are now in the follicles. What happens next? Uh, the signaling molecules, sphingosine 1-phosphate, can signal to B cells to form tight clusters when they are in the center of the follicle. How this works is that sphingosine 1-phosphate is degraded by B cells such that the concentration outside the follicle is higher than on the inside. Now, germinal center B cells express an inhibitory sphingosine 1-phosphate 2 type receptor. So they move away from regions of higher concentration to regions of lower concentrations. So that means they move away from the higher sphingosine 1-phosphate concentrations, which are outside the follicles, to the lower sphingosine 1-phosphate concentrations that are inside the follicles. Now, this leads to B cells um, to meet their follicular dendritic cell friends, and then they start dividing like crazy. So up to 10,000 cells can be created in the germinal center within days. And as they divide, 
they displace the naive B cells originally in the follicle, which then move towards the edges. So these naive cells are now on the outside of the follicles. They're pushed to the edges and they form this so-called mantle zone. Um, I'm so glad we talk about the location and where cells migrate, because I think it provides a lot of perspective. Because once you can imagine cells moving away or it towards a certain position, it tells you what's the importance of that location. But where there's so much division, there's usually a lot of death too, right? So what helps the germinal center B cells to survive among all of this death and division? Yeah, it's just their, their close friendships. Like we mentioned, the follicular dendritic cells, right? So the follicular dendritic cells hold antigens for a long time and they present it to the B cells. So that's one signal. So seeing an antigen in the context of a follicular dendritic cell helps the B cell survive. Then we also mentioned the T cells, so the T follicular helper cells. And these also provide anti-apoptotic signals through the expression of CD40 ligand. So T cells express CD40 ligand, which binds to the CD40 on the germinal center B cells. All right. So we are in the germinal center. Are we ready to talk about SAC? Uh, SAC? Yes, SAC. The four things, somatic hypermutation, affinity maturation, clonal selection, and class switching. Did you just make that up? Yeah, but it's it's awesome. It's pretty cool, isn't it, SAC? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you, you have to say S-A-C-C, otherwise people think it's S-A-C-K, and there is no K in this. <laughs> class, class with a K. <laughs> All right, let's talk about somatic hypermutation first. In this whole sack, <laughs> so, <laughs> there is there's plenty of information in the name itself. Somatic means occurring outside the germline. The, that is, the cells that contain the G DNA are passed on from generation to generation. Um, so yeah, we're talking about non-germinal cell cells. Then, somatic cells includes all of our immune cells, like B cells. Then the word hypermutation is simply mutation happening at a faster rate than the spontaneous mutation rate. This process is so important because it's what's responsible for millions of different B cell receptor and antibody sequences, and a large part of why our B cells can respond to such a variety of pathogens. Now, it's important to note that these mutations are clustered within a very specific region of the antibody, that is the structure or the region that binds to the antigen. This process of somatic hypermutation was experimentally verified first by protein sequencing in the 1970s. And recently, as recent as 1990s, scientists were able to pick B cells from either germinal centers or outside of the follicle, and they could sequence genes that code for the antigen binding region of the antibody. That's how they discovered that it's the germinal center where the somatic hypermutation takes place. So somatic hypermutation is all well and good, but if you say that these mutations are mostly random, uh, how can it be? How can we be sure that these mutations are going to be good for protection against the antigen? That's a very good point. And this is where the process of affinity maturation kicks in. Again, let's break down the name. Affinity means the ability of the antibody to bind to its ligand, which would be an antigen. And the maturation means in this context, just getting better at binding or doing whatever B cells do. 
Affinity maturation also occurs in the germinal centers. Many decades ago, in the 1960s, scientists, scientists have observed that antibodies in the serum increase in affinity for a foreign antigen over time. In present day, we understand that this happens in few steps. First, we have the B cells in the germinal centers that can bind to the antigen. In this pool of B cells are many B cell clones, meaning a B cell that has a specific B cell receptor sequence. Any of these B cell clones who can proliferate and in a perfect environment would produce many identical B cells with the same B cell receptor sequence. However, because of the process of somatic hypermutation, random mutations are inserted into the, into the antigen binding region as they divide. This changes the affinity of the, towards the antigen. This mutation can make the affinity go stronger or weaker, but again, as Koshika said, it is random and the mutations will occur randomly. And the interesting thing is, this is where the whole Darwinian concept of evolution comes in. The higher affinity antibody producing B cells, they will eventually outgrow. Of course, we'll talk about that a little bit in detail later today. And I think this is also a good segue to tell our audience that we have discussed germinal centers in the context of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection in BodySo20. So if you're interested to learn more about that in a practical context, do check it out. Thanks for the heads up about that BodySoed. I will go check that out. That sounds really interesting. Uh, but I, I'd like to dive a little bit more into the, into the details of what happens when you have all of these clones that have divided, you have uh, mutations in each of those clones, how, like, what's the next step? The next step is that the B cells undergo the process of clonal selection. During clonal selection, all the various B cells, now with slightly different affinities, compete for the antigen, which is being presented by the follicular dendritic cells. The B cells that acquired a mutation that led to the higher antigen affinity will outcompete the others. They're able to bind to the antigen, which provides a signal that is necessary for their survival. The B cells with a lower affinity do not bind the antigen, thus they do not receive the signals, thus they die, and in a way, this affinity is linked to their survival. Okay. Um, what I don't understand is how does all of this happen? So most of the time cells try and prevent mutations since they can, you know, cause the cell to die or worse, they can cause cancer, um, cause the cell to become cancerous. Why does this happen in, in these regions? Oh, is a question that normally we want to prevent mutations, but in case of B cell, because mutations can lead to cancers, but in case of B cells, we're actively inducing mutations. Why doesn't it cause cancer as much? Well, just like what allows for it to happen? I thought there was I a bunch of protective mechanisms. Okay. So mm -hmm. the answer to that is aid. Aid. A-I-D. Yes, A-I-D. The transcription factor that causes a B cell to become a germinal center B cell. Uh, it also induces the, like the BCL6, the, the transcription factor we have talked about. Again, very important for the existence of germinal centers and the germinal center B cells. BCL6 also induces the expression of this, this gene, AID. Uh, it stands for activation-induced cytidine deaminase. 
AID is a specific protein. So the product of this gene is a very specific protein that expressed in these B cells that allow for this specific type of targeted mutation. Activation induced cytidine Z deaminase sounds like an enzyme. Uh, what is it aiding in? <laughs> well, as you said, it, it's in the name. It's an enzyme that deaminates cytosine nucleotides in the DNA. Without getting too much into the specific, uh, specifics, it causes a mismatch of nucleotides in a DNA base pair. One of the few things can happen next. One possibility is that the high fidelity repair pathway can recognize this mismatch and they'll simply change it back to its original pairing. In an alternative scenario, DNA replication machinery can fill in the mismatch upon replication. Correct, they can correct it in a way that results in a thymine adenine base pair in the daughter cell where there used to be a cytosine guanine base pair in the parent cell. In, in another alternate scenario, the mismatch may lead to other enzymes targeting that site and creating a nick in the DNA where the mismatch was, leading to addition of multiple random nucleotides. So how many is multiple? There are a few different pathways that can lead to just a single nucleotide change. The addition of two to 10 nucleotides or the excision of more DNA around the mismatch site and the addition of many additional nucleotides can also take place. All these nucleotide changes and additions are the hypermutation part of the somatic hypermutation. So you can say this AID is just creating some kind of turbulence by making this change to the cytosine and the cell's own machinery will come try to fix it. And in the process of fixing it, they're going to induce a mutation. All these resulting nucleotide changes and addition is how this aid will cause the mutations. Now, aid also reduces the expression of DNA damage response genes because those genes are, well, they're programmed to be induced when they see a damage in the DNA. But in case of B cells that are going through somatic hypermutation, we do not want that. So yeah, this makes sense. So does A just go around causing mutations in all of the germinal center B cells DNA? No, it's a super targeted process. It's targeted to the genes encoding the antibody's variable region, the part of the antibody that binds to antigens. It has to do with certain sequences existing in high concentrations in these genetic regions. They call these sequences mutational hotspots. The DNA sequences around the mutational hotspots is likely also a factor about this targetedness. These sequences might cause normal replication proteins or other protective pathways to fail. It's probably just generally a bad place for efficient DNA replication, which is a great place for <laughs> versatile <laughs> immune response. <laughs> All right, so now we've covered somatic hypermutation, affinity maturation, and clonal selection. But what about class switching? Class switching, the last C of SAC. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I. It's just not catching up. I know you really want to. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. I like the idea of hitting the sack. 
hideous. <laughs> I did not like how that sounds, but let's continue. <laughs> so I would like to lead the discussion on class switching so I can participate in the, the discussion on SAC. <laughs> so to understand class switching, we should understand what the antibody classes are. In the human body, there are five major types of antibodies called immunoglobulins. So there's immunoglobulin M, as in Mary, immunoglobulin D, as in Dory, immunoglobulin G, as in Gary, immunoglobulin A, as in Ash, and immunoglobulin E, as in Edward. <laughs> For short, we'll call them IgM, IgD, IgG, IgA, and IgE. Or gamed. How is that? I like that. I like that. <laughs> Did you just come up with that one? No, I, I actually have been using that for a while, but I think this is the time I can show my acronym skills. I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so IgM and IgD can be expressed by naive B cells and they can be expressed simultaneously. Uh, they're actually encoded by the same transcript of mRNA prior to becoming proteins. But IgM and IgD aren't suited much for specific responses against antigens, so they're generally less efficient. But luckily, your immune system has a pathway in place to select the right kind of antibody based on the pathogen that the body is encountering. So the cell gets signals that change it from an IgM-producing B cell to a B cell producing another class of antibody, like the gamma, A, E, or anything else. Yeah, yeah. So it's cool because IgG, IgA, and IgE have very different functions. Uh, so IgG is the most common uh, antibody that's found in the blood and the serum, and it combines to a pathogen and a phagocytic cell um, kind of act as a linker to help the phagocyte clear the infection. It can also surround toxins in the body and, and neutralize them, prevent them from binding to uh, the receptors that the toxins typically bind to to cause damage. IgA is actually a dimer, and it is found in your mucous membrane, so mucus, saliva, tears, and breast milk. Uh, it is very good at protecting against bacteria that might be encountered in these locations, and it's typically uh, the best the the antibody that a mother will use to protect uh, the baby when it's still in the womb. IgE is very rare in healthy individuals, but it's produced in response to parasitic infections. And IgE is actually also the antibody that participates in the allergic response, so it's not everyone's favorite antibody. Yeah, I think IgE gets their bad reputation from these allergic <laughs> responses. I'm sure there's a reason for it, but the people with allergies don't appreciate it, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ash, uh, how does it cell choose which class to switch to so well let's take ige as an example here so ige is really helpful during infections with helminths such as tapeworms so the cytokine interleukin-4 or il-4 is released when the innate immune system is fighting a tapeworm the b cells that are activated in response to the tapeworm are also exposed to il-4 this IL-4 essentially tells the B cells, you are fighting a tapeworm. You should be making IgE. So it class switches to IgE. Hmm, that sounds too simple. There's got to be more to that than that. Oh, yes, there is. So <laughs> the class switching process uses some of the same mechanisms actually that somatic hypermutation uses. 
uh, that you were talking about earlier, except this occurs not in the antigen binding variable region, but it actually occurs on the heavy chain of the antibody on the opposite side of the variable region. And all of these different classes of heavy chain, so that's M, D, G, A, and E, gamed, they're all in the same like genetic area, genetic locus. Uh, within the locus are what are called switch regions. So these are areas that have high density densities of sequences that are targeted by our friend AID. So AID is important for somatic hyperimmunization and class switching. Yes. And since AID requires the DNA it's targeting to be undergoing transcription, cytokines released in response to the pathogen will initiate transcription at a promoter upstream of the heavy chain of interest. So again, this will be the heavy chain that is the best one to fight the particular infection. So in our example, IL-4 stimulates the promoter upstream of IgE and transcription starts. So then AID targets that area as well as the area around IgM since it's already being transcribed. AID creates NICs on both strands within these regions of DNA, leaving an isolated piece of DNA between the beginning of the IgM locus and the beginning of the IgE locus. So DNA recombination pathways will actually work to join the two ends of the DNA together, but in this process, that isolated piece of DNA, it doesn't get included, and it's actually irreversibly lost. Oh, dang it. That's brutal. Poor IgM and IgD just tossed aside when their purpose has been served. Yeah, yeah. And even other heavy chain loci can be lost if they're between the start of IgM and the heavy chain region that is being targeted by the cytokines that are relevant to the infection. So what happens if it doesn't join correctly? It can actually occur multiple times within a cell, but of course you eliminate these heavy chains and they're gone forever. So the B cell has less and less heavy chain loci to work with. So while it, it can keep class switching, it eventually runs out of locus to loci to, to class switch to. Hmm. Okay, so one last question about class switching. Where is it actually all happening? So most of the time, class switching occurs very shortly after the B cells are stimulated before the germinal center is formed. But it can also happen in the germinal center if necessary. So don't forget, the germinal center is a very happening place to be if you're a cell. Yes, and... There are dividing B cells, defollicular helper cells, and follicular dendritic cells. Well, cellularly speaking, it looks like there's a lot going on. Uh, I know we have previously discussed how different immune cells are organized in a secondary lymphoid organs and how the B cells travel through the whole, the whole mesh of the secondary lymphoid organ. Now I'm curious, how are these cells that are participating in the germinal center reaction organized within the germinal center? And also, where do where do memory B cells fit into all of this? Well, we can shed some light on the germinal center uh, structure, or rather light and dark. And to find out what I mean by light and dark, tune into our next episode, where we do a deeper dive into the characteristics of the germinal center. And we can also talk about memory B cells then. All right. Looks like my questions are not going to be answered today. <laughs> Should we review what we have discussed today? Yeah, we should. 
So we went over how B cells cluster together with the help of sphingosine one phosphate to create a germinal center. We also discussed how dividing B cells undergo somatic hypermutation to introduce ovarians in the antigen binding regions of a B cell receptor or the antibody, and they do all of this inside the germinal center. Finally, we talked about the role of aid in nicking the DNA during both somatic hypermutation and in class switching, which is the process by which antibodies can switch to a class more optimal for the pathogen it encounters. All right. It looks like this is a good point to wrap up our discussion. We have, uh, we're uh, coming out with two superb acronyms, SAC and GAMED. <laughs> I hope they stick. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Koshika and Ash, for this wonderful discussion today. For our audience, if you're interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find out about our blogs and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at the gmail.com. With that, I'm your host, Jatin Sharma, signing off until we meet again. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you.